Amen. Uh, turn your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. We've been teaching a series on uh, spiritual authority and dominion for the last several weeks. One of my favorite subjects, uh, I believe one of the most important subjects there is in, the, in all of Scripture. Um, we don't really have a, or I don't really have a sermon outline or a, a series outline for this. I'm just sharing thoughts on dominion. And it seems that uh, the further I get into it, the more that the Lord impresses upon me that there's more there. And um, uh, at any rate, we're starting with uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. These uh, Hebrew words mean exact duplication in kind. In other words, God's saying, let's make man as close to ourselves as we can. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. One of the most outstanding and indisputable facts in all of Scripture is that man was created to have dominion. Now, you sure wouldn't know that looking at the church nowadays. But it's indisputable. I mean, you've got to say that the Bible's a lie to come up with any other position other than man was created to have dominion. He was created to be the ruler of this earth. Well, the Bible now says that Satan is the God of this world, meaning the ruler of the earth. So something changed. Something happened. Something took place between God's original intent and the way that he uh, created the, the earth or literally recreated the earth and how things are in our present day or at least in the time that Paul wrote to the church. Now I want to add on to some things that I said last week. I really didn't get to where I wanted to go uh, last Wednesday evening. So if you were with us, uh, that's tonight may mean more to you. If you weren't with us, you might want to get a hold of the tape because there were some things that we said that we won't ha- take time to, to, uh, to go over again. But I do want to cover some of the points that, um, at least the high spots of some of the points that we made last week and go a little bit further. So I'm going to read to you from two passages of Scripture about the devil, one from Ezekiel chapter 28 and one from Isaiah chapter 14. If you want to follow along with me, feel free. If you want to just listen, then that's okay too. Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, talking about the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Thou sealest up the sum, Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, if you just stop reading right there, you'd have to conclude that he's probably talking about a man, talking about a a human being who was king of the the kingdom of Tyre or the land of Tyre. But he goes a little bit further and makes a description that shows us it's not talking about a, a human being. He says, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, no man was there except Adam after God made him. So he says, Thou wast in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz and diamond, and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire, the emerald and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day the style was created. Uh, workmanship of thy pipes and tabrets is talking about uh, the ability to sing. So apparently this is talking about somebody that was created for the purpose of leading worship. He's a created being, so his purpose would have to be lead worship of God. Always got to watch out for those worship leaders. Now, clearly, this is talking about the devil. 
It's talking about the way that God made him. Now notice what it's already told us. It says in verse uh, 12 again, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. In other words, God made Lucifer in such a way. This is before the fall, obviously. But he made him in such a way that there was no lack, no imperfection, no impurity in any way whatsoever. Lucifer was in a position where nobody could say that they were as handsome as he was, as wise as he was. In any way measuring up, Lucifer was the greatest of God's created beings at the time that he was created. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in all thy ways from the day that thou wast created until iniquity was found in thee. I want you to notice, folks, that the Bible indicates to us that Lucifer was God's favorite. God made him in a special class, a special position. He designated him as the greatest of any of the angels or other created beings. Verse 15, by the multitude of thy merchandise. The word merchandise is used a couple of times in these passages, and it always means trade. It means business. In other words, whatever he was created to do, that was the business that he was dictated, that was uh, uh, assigned to him, and apparently he was good at it. It says, by the multitude or increase of thy business, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. Now, it's talking about the, the, the change, the shift that was made from being perfect in his ways to when iniquity was found. He became violent. In other words, the business that he was in charge of or overseeing was something that be, he began to take from others rather than operate fairly. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, Lose his place, in other words. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Notice those two words, beauty and brightness. Appearance. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. Now, we've already seen that he was created in such a way so that the workmanship of his tablets and his pipes, his voice, in other words, is is identified. Now it says he's defiled the sanctuaries. Now, the word sanctuary just literally means consecrated or holy place. We think of sanctuaries as being temples or churches or someplace like that, and it may be. It may be that that was the case. It may be that those things existed in the time that Lucifer was created and placed in charge here on the earth. But it could just mean the earth as well. It could just mean that the earth, the place that he had authority, was a sanctuary or a dedicated place to God as a whole. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Here's that word merchandise or business again. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. 
thou shalt be a terror and never shalt thou be any more. Now the astonishment must refer to the destruction that God brings upon him. In other words, it seems to be saying the ones that knew you as the anointed cherub that covers, that seated up the sun, full of beauty and wisdom. Nobody could match your brightness. Nobody could match your appearance. The worship leader, the one who had the voice among all the created beings, all those that knew you at that point in time will be astonished at what you turn out to be. That seems to be what the scripture is saying. So I want you to see that the devil had a, had a place of authority. Now turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 14. I'll prove to you that that place of authority was here on the earth. Let's start reading in verse uh, 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? And let me stop here long enough to make a couple of comments and and kind of set the stage. Maybe I should have done this before, but uh, you'll understand, I think, when, when I say what I need to say. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 said, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Now, the, the, uh, the question very simply would be this. Why would God create something that had, for, had no form and void? Well, Isaiah 45, verse 17, I believe it is, says, God did not create the world without form and void. He created it not in vain, King James says, but it's the same language. So if he didn't create it without form and void, the word was in Genesis 1-2 can also be translated became, then that would indicate to us that God made the earth one way prior to Adam and Eve, prior to the creation story we know of, and then it became without form and void or a wasteland. Well, what caused it to become a wasteland? I believe that it was the work of the devil. If the Bible tells us the earth became a wasteland, then it should certainly, in all fairness, tell us what happened to create it or cause it to be that way, shouldn't it? Well, I believe it's doing that through these scriptures that we're seeing. Notice what it says. Verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, to the ground, to the ground? He fell from heaven to the earth. We know the story that Satan rebelled against God. He took a third of the angels with him, and the Bible says Satan was cast out of heaven. It wasn't some long, protracted war that God just barely won because he outnumbered him. He had two-thirds of the angels, and Lucifer only had one-third. He rebelled against God, and God cast him out of heaven like lightning, according to what Jesus said. Thou art cut down to the crown, which did weaken the nations. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, which did weaken the nations. Now, folks, he's not talking about what Satan's doing now in the earth. He's talking about what happened before when Satan fell or leading up to Satan's fall. For thou hast said, here's what caused him to fall. Here's what caused him to be filled with iniquity. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. So he must have been below heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, he must have had a throne and it must have been beneath the throne and the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mountain of the congregation in the sides of the north. Well, that's talking about the place of God. So he must have been beneath that. 
Now, folks, I want you to notice something else about this. Notice the original sin was believing in his heart and saying with his mouth. That's where the rebellion came. He sinned in exactly the way that the Bible says we sin, by believing wrong and speaking. That's how iniquity was found in him. Now, God did not create the iniquity. The Bible says specifically that he was perfect. Lucifer was perfect in the manner in which he was created. Iniquity was self-induced or created on his own apart from God. It was pride that caused it. Verse 14, here's more of what he said. He said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. So he must have been below the clouds. Sounds like earth. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble? I lost my place. Hold on a second. The word tremble means to quiver, to disquiet, to rage, to quake, to to shake, and to trouble. So he's talking about something that shook the earth from its core. Is this the one that made the earth to tremble? The man that made the earth to tremble that did shake the kingdoms. So he's talking about something that was here. Now think about that, folks. This is prior to man, the creation of man. And he said there were kingdoms, there were nations, there was merchandise or business, there were traffic, there were cities. All those things were in place. Now then the question has to be considered, well, who was in them? And I don't have an answer for you. What I do know is it wasn't man. This is prior to man's creation. You remember when it came time to create man and God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, as much like ourselves as we can, which Lucifer was not. He was not made in the image of God. He was made a perfect created being. There was a deposit of him in him of the fullness of wisdom, brightness, and so forth. There was no lack in him, but he was not in the image and likeness of God which is what he wanted. He said, I will be like the most high. So it means he wasn't. But when the time came to make man, the angel stood back and said, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? You're going to give him dominion over the earth and over all the works of your hands. What is this thing called man? We've never heard of anything like that before. Well, the angels were the ones, the angels that said those things in Psalm 8 are the very ones that, was, uh, that were a part of the two-thirds group that stayed with God. So they've witnessed Lucifer, Lucifer fall. They've witnessed whatever was here before man was created in the uh, beginning with verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1. They've seen all that, and their question is, what is man going to be like when God announces he's going to create him? So it speaks of Lucifer and says, uh, where was that? Verse 17, I believe. No, no, no. Verse 15. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, this, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness? Now, folks, I would submit to you that's not what the devil's doing now. He certainly influenced the world for evil. And I have no doubt that if the, if the devil could make it happen on his own and the, and the church is the only thing that's stopping it, he'd make all the nuclear powers 
point their weapons at each other and destroy each other in one fell swoop. He'd make the earth as a wilderness if he could. So I'm not saying that he's not trying to do that, but this is talking about something that's already occurred. This is speaking from a point of view of something that was already accomplished. Is this the one that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? There were cities. And opened not the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But thou art cast out of their grave like an abominable branch and the raiment of those that are slain thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. Um, well, there's, that's, those are really the scriptures I wanted to see. But notice what it says specifically. I lost the, lost the, the phrase there. Where is it? Uh, verse 17. Is this the one that made the earth as a wilderness? Well, that's exactly the same language we're talking about in Genesis 1-2. And the earth was, or literally became, without form and void. The darkness covered the face of the deep. Now, we know the story of how Adam fell in the garden. We know that the serpent came to him. I don't in any way believe that the one that was so concerned about his brightness and his appearance and all this kind of stuff would appear as a snake. The word serpent literally means deceiver. The reason that the word serpent is used is because it's talking about the voice like a hissing sound which would just typify rebellion against God but whatever form the devil appeared to to, uh, I just I just can't wrap my head around somebody that was lifted up in pride looking like a snake choosing to look like a snake but regardless when the devil comes and tempts at Eve she eats of the forbidden fruit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gives it to Adam he's standing right there they abdicated their authority. They refused to, they chose not to act on what God told them to do, to guard and protect the garden. And they fell. We know at that point that things changed. There was a light that surrounded them that apparently went out. He said the first thing that they noticed was that they were naked and ashamed. They saw they were naked and they were ashamed because of it. Well, what was clothing them before then? Why didn't they notice they were naked before that point? Well, if they were made in the image of God, after his likeness, if the life that was breathed in them was the same spirit of God or the life of God that God has himself. The Bible talks about the glory and the shining, the brightness of God. It's probable, in my thinking at least, that they were clothed with light. Bible says God is light if they were made as close to his image as they could be or as close to his likeness as possible then they probably shined like lights themselves Jesus uses the same example for us to be lights in this world he said that he was the light of the world there was a point in time in his earthly ministry when the physical body let the the glory of his very being show forth when he was transfigured on the mountain That's probably the, the clothing that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. At any rate, something changed. And they became conscious of themselves and their own appearance. Now, I believe that that was the point where Satan became the god of this world. I believe I can prove it by Scripture. But my point is very simply this. Satan would think 
that he's just going to replay what he's done before. Now turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3 because I want you to see something after the fall. God pronounces the curse upon Adam regarding the ground, the curse upon the woman regarding a special animosity that the devil will have against her, which is interesting. Why her? It talks about her seed and the trouble that she'll be having regarding childbirth and the animosity that there would be between Satan's seed and her seed. And then he curses the serpent. But now I want you to see something beginning in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. The devil is probably thinking, well, I've destroyed this earth before. Now I have authority here on the earth with God's great new creation in whatever period of time he did last in the Garden of Eden in obedience to God. We know that he finally fell. I think we kind of read the story and think that God created man on the sixth day, rested on the seventh day, and by the Monday morning on the eighth day, he had already fallen. But he could have spent generations there in the Garden of Eden before Satan caused him to fall. At, what, at whatever uh, point in time he did fall, notice what God says. Verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the, at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep. The word keep is literally preserve. To keep the way of the tree of life. Now I want you to notice something. As I said, Satan is just replaying what he's done before in his thinking. He destroyed the world, made it a wilderness before. Now he's got control of the world with mankind in it. Human beings able to reproduce. So he has the opportunity to destroy the favorite of all of his created beings, of all of God's created beings, to hurt God in the worst possible way by destroying the earth that is now the world of mankind. And God stops that. Now it's interesting to notice the difference between the world that was before and the world that has now fallen into the hands of the devil. If Genesis 1-2 is accurate, and God's the one telling us the story, so we have to accept that it is. It says, and the earth became without form and void. We believe the devil did that, caused it to be in that, that condition. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. I want you to notice what God did with the earth that was inhabited by the angels and whoever was under Satan's authority, was under Lucifer's authority that became Satan after iniquity was found in him. God abandoned the earth. God abandoned the earth, and the devil turned it into a wilderness. But notice God doesn't abandon the earth of mankind. The first thing that he does is he says we've got to stop man from eating of the tree of life. Because if he does, he'll be in this state forever. 
I want you to notice something, folks. Immortality has no redemption quality to it. The problem would have been, the worst possible case, would have been for a man to live forever in a condition of spiritual death. But he would live forever. God stops that. The Bible says Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world. I believe that means Jesus was slain before the foundations of the world of Genesis 1-1. Not the recreated world of mankind. But that this was God's, but redemption, the redemptive work of Jesus was always God's plan. So God is just now putting it in, in place and beginning to implement the plan of redemption that he had designed from the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And step one is to keep man from, from staying or maintaining an immortal state as a spiritually dead man. Now, why doesn't God abandon this earth? Why didn't he just wipe all of mankind out, deal with the devil once and for all, put him in the bottomless pit, all the things that the Bible says he's going to do to him in the book of Revelation? Why didn't he do that then and just start over with mankind? He could have created mankind in such a way that he didn't have a choice. Don't have to worry about the sin part if you do that. But notice again, In verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said man has become like one of us. Knowing good and evil. I want you to understand something folks. God knows good and evil. Well if God knows good and evil. Man knows good and evil too. But man found it through experience. How does God know good and evil? He knows of evil. But the fact that he is righteous keeps him from ever doing evil. In other words, the nature of God is to know that there is evil, to recognize that there is evil. But the righteousness of his nature prevents him from ever partaking of it. So what does God do? Well, God shows man how to make a sacrifice to cover his sins. But his relationship with man has changed. He can no longer walk with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day like he did before. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 15. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He hasn't changed his name yet. His name's still Abram. Verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, after these things refers to the previous verses of chapter 14, where Abram and his 314 servants in his house uh, executed a commando raid on, on the five enemy kings, or at least a part of the five enemy kings' armies, that has taken Lot, his nephew, and the king of Sodom, and uh, all of his goods and all of the, the people and so forth. So he gets his nephew back and all of the stuff, and then he meets Melchizedek and pays tithes to Melchizedek, who was a priest of God. So it says after these things, I believe that's important to, that, to know there's a connection. But after these things, God appears to Abram and says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. 
And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And this steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given to me no seed. And lo, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that cometh forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now verse 6 is a real important verse. Because up to this point, all Abraham is operating on are promises. God appears to him in chapter uh, 11, or chapter 12, I guess it is. And said, Abram, go where I tell you to go, and I'll make of you a great nation. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. He's got promises, but that's all he's got. And God fulfills his promises. So much so that he's increased to the point where he has those 314 servants in his house, male servants in his house that form the army that executes the commando raid at night. So here it says in verse 6, it says, And Abram believed God, and he counted it unto him for righteousness. For righteousness. Now Paul uses this verse over and over and over again in the New Testament. And Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. I want you to notice what that means, or consider what that means. That means Abraham's belief and confession. His agreement with what God said is what God counts to his credit as the same spirit and nature that he placed in Adam. The same spirit, the same life, the same nature, the same characteristics of himself. In other words, Abram's faith puts him in a place where he is in the image and likeness of God once again. Where he, meaning mankind. Abram is a representative of mankind. A man is in the image and nature of God, or image and likeness of God once again. All because of his faith. He believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Now skip down with me to verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, this word covenant is the first time it's used in the Bible apart from or other than what God made, the covenant that God made with Noah, where he put the rainbow in the sky and all that kind of stuff, promising not to destroy the earth again by flood. Here it talks about a covenant that God makes with Abram. This is new. Like I said, all that Abram's had up until that point were promises, and he believed them. And those promises, belief of those promises, were sufficient for God to count it unto Abram as righteous. Now God makes a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river Egypt unto the great river Euphrates, and then gives us the other boundaries of it. In other words, the land of Canaan, what we know of as the nation of Israel today, and some of the surrounding areas. God made a covenant concerning the land. He has not made a covenant with him. He's made a covenant that his seed shall inherit this land forever. The land of Israel, what we know of as the land of Israel forever. God is taking Abraham step by step by step. He doesn't appear to him in chapter 12 and just say, Abram, you're my guy. 
I expect you to trust me and believe everything I say, so let's cut, the, let's cut an animal in pieces and start making covenants. Now, the Bible tells us about um, um, in chapter 16, it tells us about Ishmael being born of Hagar, who was Sarah's handmaid. It says when Ishmael was born, he was, Abram was uh, 86 years old. Chapter 17 tells us that Abram was 90 years old and nine. Verse 1, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, white before me and be thou perfect. So we know that there's at least 13 years, probably closer to 15, maybe as many as 19 years that have passed between the first covenant God made with him in chapter 15 and when he makes another covenant with him when Abram's 99 years old. Stay with me. I know some of this is tedious, but stay with me because I've got a point I'm trying to make. The Lord said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Now he's talking about a covenant with Abraham. He changes his name. Verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shalt thy name be called any more Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For the father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. He goes on and talks about the possession. So he's saying the covenant I'm making now includes the covenant I made with you in chapter 15 about the land. But this is a covenant between me and you that lasts forever. He goes forward and he talks about the covenant even further. He talks about establishing his covenant. Verse 21, my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. In other words, God is saying very simply this. The difference between the world that the Satan made a wilderness out of, Lucifer turned into a wilderness and a wasteland, which God abandoned and walked away from. And the world of mankind is one simple truth, and that is relationship. He's saying, here's the difference, Abram. Abraham now. Here's the difference. The difference is, I've got a covenant with you. Now, even before Abraham had a covenant with God, he had a covenant with the land, but not a covenant with God specifically for himself. Even before then, Abraham, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. Well, that was part of the steps of the process whereby Abraham is learning to believe God and trust God more and more and more and more until the point where Abraham has come to the place where God said, all right, now it's time to fulfill the promise of the child. I know it looks impossible to you, but nothing's too hard for me. And I'm dealing with you through this thing called the covenant, which very simply just means the relationship that God established with him. I want you to see that it's all about relationship. Now, here's why this is important. Let's read over into chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw, saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. This turns out to be the Lord and two of his angels. Now, he talks to him about some stuff, talks to him about... Uh, Isaac being born. So a year has not passed between the previous chapter and this chapter. Isaac still hasn't been born, hasn't been conceived yet. 
So it's just a matter of a few months between the two chapters. God has to deal with Sarah's attitude. She's laughing now about the the promise or the possibility of having a son. So she gets her head right, gets her heart right about it. Now, let's pick up the story in verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. These are the two men, the two angels that God's going to send to the city. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham all that he has spoken of unto him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which is coming to me, and if not, I'll know. God is saying very simply this, I can't hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. Now, his intent is to destroy the cities if the wickedness is, is as he suspects. So his intent is to destroy the city, and he's saying, I've got to tell Abraham about this. Why? Because I've got a relationship with him. He's going to become a great nation and a father of nations, but the only reason he'll do that, step into that place, is because of the covenant relationship he has with God. So in other words, he's saying, Abraham has a right to know because of my covenant relationship. You've got a right to know a lot of things that you're not taking advantage of. The Bible says that we've got a better covenant established upon better promises. But God said, I can't hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. Now, what happens is Abraham starts dickering with God. And it's all based on this. It's verse uh, 22. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, and here he's talking to God. The two angels have started walking toward the cities. But Abraham stands next to the Lord God and says, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, remember, he's in a covenant relationship with God that's unlike anything that any man has had since Adam. Adam's covenant wasn't spelled out in the same way. It wasn't obtained the same way because he wasn't created in the same way that uh, he was created and Abraham was born. But Abraham has a covenant relationship with God that puts him in the same boat as, as Adam had, same position as Adam was in. So he asked a question. He said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Then he starts asking about numbers. He said, if there's 50 righteous there, you destroy the city. The Lord says, no, I won't for 50. He said, how about 45? Gets down to 10. Now, if you were Abraham, and knowing what we know about Abraham's willingness to take his 314 servants and go deliver Lot from the hands of these five enemy kings, who do you think he's concerned about in Sodom? It's quite possible that Abraham could have asked God and say, will you spare the city for Lot's sake? That would have been interesting to see what God's answer would have been. Most probably, based on the covenant relationship, God would have said one of two things, either, yeah, I'll spare the city for Lot's sake, or, no, I won't spare the city, but I'll get Lot out. But Abraham must figure there's ten righteous people in the city. Maybe he figures there's that many in Lot's family. 
So he quits arguing with the Lord about how many and what's going to happen. What I want you to see is Abraham is a place of authority with God's plan. Why? Because of the covenant relationship that God established. Abraham has done nothing other than believe God to create, put himself in a position to have this kind of authority. The only thing the Bible ever says that Abraham did was believe God. That was it. So the next chapter tells us, chapter 19 tells us about the, the two angels going into Sodom. You know the story. We won't go into all, detail, all the details, but I do want you to see a little bit of it. The two angels go into the city. Lot finds them, recognizes them as strangers, pulls them into his house for the night. They kind of argue about it and say, no, we'll sleep in the streets. And, and Lot says, no, you don't understand what the streets are like. You can't do that. You have to stay in my house. And they demand for these two new people, new travelers into the city, to be thrown out to them to be abused. Lot tries to make a deal with them and say, no, don't take these men. The law of hospitality says that I've got to protect them even with my life, so take my young daughters that aren't married, who I'm sure are thinking, thanks a lot, Dad. But they wouldn't have anything to do with it. They said, no, send us out, send these men out, or we'll take you too, do terrible things to you. And so the angels smite them with blindness. Now, this is not sickness or disease. It must be blindness like the blindness of a giant flash bulb going off in your eyes or something like that but it's interesting because the bible says well let me read this to you it, it's just it's fascinating to me uh, where is it where is it where is it verse uh, verse 11 there it is and they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness both small and great so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Now, whatever this blindness was, the flash of light or whatever it was that caused them to be, to be temporarily blinded, and I don't mean momentarily blinded, but temporarily blinded, they didn't let that stop them from trying to get into the door. It's not like they realized, wow, this is unusual. Maybe we ought to think, think about this, uh, give this a second thought or something. They're groping around trying to find the door to break it down. Anyway, beginning in verse 12, it says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any, any besides sons-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place. The angels are right up front saying, Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're sent to do. We found out that the wickedness is just as we suspected. Here's what we're going to do. We will destroy this place. Because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy it, destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city." And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters for the Lord being merciful unto them. And they brought them forth and set him outside the city. And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he said, escape for your life. Look not behind you. Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain lest thou be consumed. 
And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant has found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto, and isn't it a little one? Oh, let me escape there. Look how little it is. And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, here's what the angel responds to Lot. And he says unto him, see, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city, speaking about the small city that he's going to run to, for that for which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape there, for I cannot do anything till you become thither. I can't do anything till you get out of range. Now, let me ask you a question. Abraham bargained with God down to 10 people. There are not 10 righteous people in the city. But why could the angels not carry out God's instruction to destroy the city until Lot gets out of range? It can't be because of Lot's attitude. Because in the first place, Lot has lived for years ever since he and Abraham separated because they were too great and the land couldn't hold them both. Lot has gotten closer and closer and more and more involved in the activities of the city every time he shows up. It starts off when he first leaves uh, Abram that he goes and he camps outside the city. Then it tells us that he moves inside the city. Now by the time we get to this place where the city is destroyed... He's one of the judges or the the prominent people in the city. Now, what's Lot doing in a city like that? Add to that that he's given his daughters, two of his daughters, to be married to men of the city. Don't know what they were like. But why wouldn't a father see how things are going, that his daughters are growing up, see the condition of the city and get his family out of there? A righteous man would do that, wouldn't he? A man that cared about righteousness or cared about the things of God, he'd get away from that place, wouldn't he? But then when the angels get there, Lot does the right thing in in trying to follow the laws of hospitality, take care of and protect the men, the angels. But when the time comes and the angels say, we're sent here to destroy the city and we're going to do it, what does Lot do? He waits till morning. And then the angels have to take him by the hand because he's delaying. What in the world would you delay for? But the angels, because of the mercy of God, specified here in these scriptures, identified specifically. The angels take him by the hand, lead him outside the city, drag him out, and finally say, go run to the mountains so you'll escape. What does Lot do? He says, oh, I can't go to the mountains. Mountains are tough. I've lived in the city a long time. Give me another little city. How about that little city over there? It's just a little city. And the angels, even though that city was part of the territory and part of the area that was to be destroyed too, apparently, the angels say, okay, we'll spare that city. Do we know the condition of that city? Is it any better than Sodom? The Bible doesn't tell us. It just tells us that they accept what Lot says about going into that little, little city and says, and their final words are, 
Go quickly. Because we can't do anything until you get out of range. Well, if it's not Lot's character, if it's not Lot's attitude toward the things of God, if it's not not his faith or his actions that are shown to be anything remotely associated with righteousness, why can't the angels destroy the city until Lot leaves? There's only one possibility, folks, and that's his relationship with Abraham. What I want you to see is Abraham has authority because of a relationship with God. I want you to also see that Lot has, a, has authority, a measure of authority, through his relationship with the one who has a relationship with God. And the Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6, that we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Now, if the old covenant where Abraham and even Lot were not new creatures in Christ Jesus, had authority in the works of God's hands. And our covenant is better, established upon better promises. What would you expect our place of authority to be, greater or less than theirs? How could it not be greater if we have a better covenant? I mean, if the Bible just said we have the same covenant, that'd been good. But it doesn't say that. It says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Because of relationship. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. What? I, I, can I have a couple more minutes? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River. The Holy Ghost comes upon him in bodily shape as a dove. That just means something came from heaven that everybody could see and landed on Jesus and stayed there. And the very next thing it says, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. I want you to notice that the devil, Satan, is duplicating the experience that he had with Adam. This is how he stole authority from Adam. This is how he's going, and he knew, the devil knew clearly who Jesus was. He knew exactly what was prophesied about him. He knew Jesus up until that point had fulfilled many prophecies and scriptures in his birth. He knew that the Holy Ghost coming on Jesus meant one and only one thing, and that was he was anointed with the power of God to do whatever God wanted him to do. That couldn't be good for Satan, whatever he thought about it. So what does he do? He tries to steal Jesus' relationship with his father through sin, just like he did with Adam. Remember what happened when Adam fell? He lost his place in his relationship with God because he lost the life of God within him. So he tries the same thing with Jesus. 
If you're the son of God, command that this stone be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. First thing he tempts Jesus with is to use the authority, whatever power he has from God, for his own personal benefit. To take care of his body, to put his flesh first. Jesus said, Nope. The word's more important to me than my flesh. Then the devil took him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That means past, present, and future. All the kingdoms of the world wouldn't mean all the ones up until that time. It means all of them. And the devil said unto him, All this power, literally authority, will I give thee and the glory of them. Notice this phrase. For that is delivered unto me. Who delivered it? Adam did. When did Adam deliver it? When he fell in the Garden of Eden. The kingdoms of the world were never intended to be under Satan's authority. Man was given authority on the earth. That's why he was created. That's why he was made in the image and likeness of God. So the devil said, All this authority will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will I give it. Now I want you to notice what the devil told him was a true statement. If it wasn't a bona fide If it wasn't a true statement, then it's not a bona fide or a real temptation. And Jesus would have just called him a liar. Notice the devil controls who is in in charge of kingdoms. You might want to keep that in mind when you vote. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou will therefore worship me, all shall be thine. Now, folks, I would submit to you that this is what Jesus came to get. He came to get authority that the devil had taken from Adam. Now it's being offered to him. But not in the right way, not according to God's plan. So Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him up to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. What's he tempting Jesus with here? To make a name for himself. All these are things that the devil said about himself when he was Lucifer and in charge here on the earth in the previous world. He's trying to get Jesus with the things that got him. But Jesus answers and said, It is said, it is also written in other words, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. I want you to notice that Jesus was not willing to give up his relationship with God like Adam and Eve did. Jesus' authority here on the earth was because of his relationship with God and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that was upon him. And that's the authority that he delegated to his disciples while he was here. Now, once he went to the cross and was raised from the dead, it's a different story. He was raised from the dead in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says his first words were, All power, literally authority, is given unto me in heaven and earth. In other words, I don't have the authority that I had before I died, before the cross. I've got all authority here on the earth. What all authority has been added to him? He stole. I'm sorry, he didn't steal anything. He took the authority that Satan stole from Adam back for those who are in the same relationship through his resurrection with God as himself it's relationship 
When the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, old things are passed away and all things become new. It's talking about relationship. It's talking about the newness of authority and all that belongs to us through the work of Jesus because of the relationship that we've now entered into through Jesus' sacrifice. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, For this purpose was the Son of, Ma- Son of Man manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. What works of the devil did he want to destroy? Well, he wanted to destroy sickness and disease. He wanted to destroy sin. He wanted to destroy bondage that, uh, uh, in every type that the devil was holding over people. But all of those are part of Satan's authority that he gained from Adam. So we could say it this way. Destroying the works of the devil that Jesus was sent to do is to retake or regain the authority that mankind lost and was created to have. I've been reading a lot after John Lake. Always have, really. But here lately, I've really back on a John Lake kick thing, whatever. And I came across something that uh, that struck me as odd. Uh, it was a, an account, a transcript of his funeral service. Never had seen it before. I found it in some of the old unpublished things. And one of the men that was eulogizing John Lake said this. John Lake was a man that was used greatly in the things of God and the power of God. And he understood authority and dominion like very few people have ever known or understood. And one of the... Um, one of the men that were eulogizing him was a close friend of him, his, had been a partner with him, ministry partner with him, associate for, for decades. And he said this, he said, when I first got around John Lake, he said, I was amazed at the things that he did. And Lake was amazed that I was amazed. And then he said this, he said, we thought, talking about himself as representative of others that knew him, He said, we thought the victory was over there, talking about heaven. Lake showed us the victory was here. Now, how'd you like that written on your tombstone? How'd you like that being said about you at your funeral? We thought the victory was over there in heaven. He showed us that the victory was here. Folks, you've got authority that you've never even thought about tapping into. Because you're in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to read and understand your word. We thank you, Father, for giving unto each one of us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of your calling. And the riches of your glory in the saints. And the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Open our eyes to who we are in Christ, Lord. Open our eyes to the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. Open our eyes to the power that you've made available to us to carry out your will here in the earth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.